It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Jess is out on a much-deserved break, but I am here, and I'm joined by the executive director of the AAPI Victory Alliance, Varun Nikor. He's here to talk about the AAPI voting block, which is a huge huge voting block, huge and diverse, and so important, not just in present elections, but in the future. Thank you so much for being here. Executive Director of the AAPI Victory Alliance. Um, And so you are the person to talk to (laughs) about this particular topic. I'm one of the people today. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So where should we start? So like, let's, let's, um, give folks the lay of the land. When we're, when we talk about the AAPI community, and the AAPI vote, what do we mean? Yeah, I mean, so the the definition AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islanders, we encompass uh, the origins of over 25 nations uh, in from West Asia, countries like Iran and Afghanistan, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Nepal, et cetera, East Asia, uh, China, Korea, Vietnam, et cetera. And then of course, of the Pacific Islands, um, which include Indonesia, um, Hawaii, uh, and several others. And so it is a wide geographic <laughs> That's a lot of places. That's a <laughs> that's lot of like places. A lot. That's yeah. like half the map. <laughs> I mean, also, too, we, we joke on the show, that famous scene from the West Wing, like, we've kind of been doing the maps wrong. So again, in terms of geographic, um, like actual space, it's it's a lot of the map. <laughs> it's 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 a lot of the map we're talking about. And and we're talking about folks too that you know speak, um, you know over a hundred languages yep. and dialects, right? And came at different periods of time in this nation's history. Uh, there's you know actually Asians that uh, came during the Revolutionary War. Uh, and, uh, of course, the largest migrations were in the late 1800s and then again in the uh, 1960s and 70s when, you know, my parents came and many, many uh, folks came. The bulk of APIs came during that time and they're still coming. I mean, it's, it's so important to understand that history because when we're talking about the impact of this particular voting um, block and this aspect of the American electorate, um, it's important to understand their diversity, <laughs> I think, first and foremost, um, and yeah. also that, that history piece. Um, one of the things that's making this conversation even more relevant than it, it always was is the fact that we're, we've been following closely what's happening on the state level, which is um, we were just talking in the first hour about abortion restrictions that have been passed on the state level all over the country. But the other thing that's happening right now is redistricting. Um, in many of these, of course, battleground states, because, of, you know, they're not really working to redistrict in Wyoming. Um, all, you know, like, turns out all of the action happens in the states that impact the outcome of the presidential election. Funny how that's a coincidence. Um, but give us a sense of the lay of the land and what um, is happening in terms of redistricting in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, 
and how the AAPI community and and their size and share of the electorate in those places, um, how that factors into these maps that are being drawn up in many states, but including North Carolina and Pennsylvania, that dilute the impact that that voting block would have. Yeah, so at the 30,000 foot level, right, just as background, we do these redistricting maps uh, once every 10 years after the census is done, right? And so we just, you know, finished 2020 and we entered redistricting process over the last year. COVID threw a wrench in a lot of the counts that typically happen during census and there's a lot of back and forth. And so then states take over once they get the census information and then they try to determine based upon the demographic makeup and many other factors, how the congressional lines, uh, you know, those folks who uh, are in Congress, what the geographic boundaries are for those uh, you know, congressional seats. And in states, uh, a large number of states that are controlled by Republican and Democratic legislators, they uh, attempt to draw maps and, and boundaries that, uh, according to, you know, state rules and federal rules, um, don't attempt to uh, do things. Uh, there's terms called cracking and packing. Uh, and so, uh, what that means essentially is if you try to uh, put too many people of the same demography or background in one district to dilute their voting power in others, uh, you know, there's this back and forth. And, and so um, what was, I would say at the 30,000 foot level, the trend, uh, you know, going into a lot of these redistricting fights was that Democrats were going to be decimated. Why? Because Republicans owned more geography in in terms of the state legislatures. They control more state legislatures than Democrats do, and especially in places that are emerging battleground states uh, or battle or are battleground states like North Carolina, like Pennsylvania, like Texas, Georgia, and many others. And so, in those states that I mentioned. Uh, there was particularly a watchful eye um, outside of Pennsylvania. Most states in the South and the Sun Belt actually gained congressional seats because more people have been moving into those mm-hmm. states and other states have lost congressional seats. And so generally speaking, there was this migration from the North to the South over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And this has been happening for many years. And so in a lot of cases when state legislatures draw these maps uh, that in places that um, in large part are controlled by Republicans, they try to take advantage and they try to create more seats for Republicans uh, than for Democrats. And uh, in uh, many cases, particularly uh, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, the state uh, legislatures wrote maps and then it got bucked up to the Supreme Court because uh, there was appeals that happened by Democrats and said, no, these maps are unfair. We'll let the Supreme Court uh, decide. And in these two specific instances, they said, uh, we're going to kick it back down to the lower courts because mm-hmm. uh, it should be the the states that that, that decide. And um, and because legislatures can't agree and um, 
uh, often cases, then it becomes either independent redistricting uh, commissions that, that draw the maps or judges draw the maps, which then means that the maps will be much more favorable to Democrats. And we've seen repeated instances of this. Uh, and you know, last year at this time, folks were predicting, especially on the Democratic side, our side, that uh, uh, we're going to get, you know, <laughs> eaten alive. And it didn't happen in many cases. Outside of Alabama, uh, it, it, it looks like the maps were pretty fair to, to mm -hmm. Democrats. And now we have an almost even, even playing field. Now, there's a lot of other things that are not on our side. We can right. get into that if you want. But oh, yeah. certainly from, from a redistricting standpoint, it looks like we're going to do all right. Well, so let's let's talk about the ways, the obstacles, right? Because I think that, you know, the redistricting conversation, um, as you said, there was a lot of panic. And then the reality of the map set in and court challenges happened, like you said. And so it's shaking out that Democrats aren't going to be as in a as bad a position as predicted, but how can they actually exploit that? Because one of the things that I think um, I've, I think a lot about and I think Democrats probably should think more about is the way in which they're engaging with these communities. And we started by talking about the diversity of the AIPI community as a voting block, as, as a, an American community, um, as part of the American fabric. How should Democrats engage them obviously it's going to be different depending upon who you're talking to um but i feel like there is so little engagement at all I, i'm trying to think of a moment where mm -hmm. president biden came out and said something you know that wasn't related to for example the aapi hate crimes um related to the pandemic that we've been seeing um happen all around the country um, for the past couple of years. Other than that, I can't think of anything. So there's a lot of work to be done. Where does he start? Yeah, you know, so a lot of ways to sort of continue just briefly on the redistricting fight, right? In, in, a, in the Houston area, uh, you know, Texas is a state that gained the most amount of congressional seats in any um, state in the country, three congressional seats seats. And those congressional seats, of course, as I said earlier, were lost uh, because of this migration from the north to the south. In one of the congressional districts, it happens to be about 25% AAPI. And what uh, the state legislature did in Texas, controlled by Republicans, is uh, essentially divide that 25% out between several congressional districts and thus dilute the power of AAPI. So that's one thing that, you know, the other side is doing to dilute our power, dilute our vote. The other, of course, are these onerous voting rights uh, restrictions that were put in place uh, originally that they were, you know, started in Georgia, and then they went to Texas. And now lots of other states have copied those restrictions and have codified those into law. And, um, and so that's the other way that, uh, you know, Republicans restrict the right, uh, make just make it harder to vote, right? Not only for APIs, mm -hmm. but all people of color, frankly, because right. they see what happened in the 2020 election uh, that, you know, we came out, APIs came out in record numbers. There was a 47% increase in API votes between 2016 and 2020. Uh, we think that is the highest 
uh, an increase of any demographic between one presidential election wow. and the next in the history of our country. Like we can't find that it's it happened in the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s. Wow. And so that's, you know, really remarkable. And the fact that there was hardly any money spent on turning out our vote, right? And there's many reasons why I, I would say Donald Trump is probably the main reason, yeah. uh, you know, that he fired up our community and then COVID and the hate uh, yeah. perpetrated against our community. It's just really shown that we take matters into our own hands and we're doing, you know, positive things. We're getting involved in state and local elections. We're voting for the first time in record numbers. And that only bodes well for the future. But you know, even though we've voted uh, in a large increase over the last, you know, several years, uh, there's a large number, millions of API voters are still not even registered to vote right. at this point. So we have a lot of gas in the tank let, let to use, but if we had some resources, we could really, you know, fire it up even more and flip, flip more states, flip more congressional seats and other local elections. I didn't realize the number, the percentage increase was that much. I mean, I, I don't know why I didn't have that, num that number in my brain, but um, now I do and it won't leave because I think, you know, we talk so much about the need to engage suburban women or whatever, like narratives um, that pop up into the news cycles um, before any elections, but presidential and midterm elections. And I, I, I am frequently frustrated by the, the lack of coverage of um, not just the, the AIPI voting bloc, but the different pieces um, of the AIPI voting block, right? I mean, don't you think it we, we should break it down into even smaller bite-sized conversations because, you know, we learned in the 2020 election, for example, that the Latino voters in South Florida are not like the Latino voters in Arizona or North Carolina or Texas. Like, the, And even saying that sentence sounds silly, when you break it down um, a little bit further. So do you feel like we would benefit from a more nuanced conversation where we're, we're being more specific? You know, we're, we're focusing on specificity when we're talking about this, this demographic group. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the, the five main ethnicities that comprise about 75, 80% of all the APIs in this country uh, Chinese, Americans, Vietnamese, Filipino, Korean, and Indian. And so those are, you know, the five major, but there are, you know, the, the remaining 20, 25% of APIs comprise folks from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, uh, you know, places like Thailand, places like Iran, places mm -hmm. like Afghanistan. Those are all API voters and they often get missed, right? The fact that we have now refugees from if Afghanistan who uh, potentially have a pathway to citizenship, they are going to be uh, a factor in uh, a lot of states going forward, right? You know, over the next, you know, five, 10, 15 years. So that's something we need to keep an eye on. And, you know, we're on the trajectory to be the largest minority vote in this country, you know, in the next uh, 15 to 30 years, just depending on demographic uh, patterns and immigration and that sort of thing. So uh, we better get started on learning mm -hmm. more about the API community because it's going to be a factor much more so. Right now, we're about 7% of the U.S. population. That could grow to be 10 or 15% right. of the U.S. population. 
And, you know, when has there been an election in this country that has not been close, right? Especially in presidential mm -hmm. uh, elections. And the fact that, you know, we are now being able to determine elections because we're coming out as uh, almost a newfound voting block, right? Uh, we're almost at the precipice of being a voting block that, you know, the uh, uh, campaigns better pay attention because if they don't have a specific API strategy and plan going in, then they're not talking to the right people. They're not allocating their resources properly and uh, they need to. Otherwise, that 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 could go the other way. There was a lot of uh, campaigning done by Glenn Youngkin, uh, the now governor, Republican governor in Virginia, in last year's election, the 2021 uh, mm -hmm. election. And he went after the API community hard from the very day that he got nominated. And he peeled off a lot of API voters um, on the education issue, on other mm -hmm. issues. And so he better pay, you know, Americans uh, and and Democrats better start paying attention because otherwise this is the playbook that could happen in 2022. One of the things you also mentioned is um, Donald Trump being a factor. So one of the things that um, I thought a lot about um, as I wrote my book, The End of White Politics, which is essentially the premise is, you know, the demographic shifts are going to make um, non-white voters, um, AAPI voters, black voters, Latinx voters, um, the majority of the American electorate by 2045, and that is going to have a major impact on our, you know, all everything, all of our politics. Um, so Democrats probably should start to figure out what they're going to say to these communities more directly. Um, and one of the things you said about Donald Trump is that, you know, folks voted in opposition to Donald Trump in the 2020 election, obviously at record numbers. Um, in part, I think, because of the racism, right? I mean, I think there was COVID-specific um, racism targeting the AAPI community um, since the beginning of the pandemic. But I think the racism, um, and you saw this sort of even in results in Barack Obama's two elections. Um, he, he got three-quarters of the AAPI voting block during his both of his elections. Um, and I think that the racism that sort of is a threat in the Republican, the present day Republican party, um, or at least the fact that their leadership does not marginalize and reject the, the racism um, that is being perpetuated by people in their ranks, but also by the previous president. I mean, do you think that that's a major factor in turning off a lot of these voters that even if like you were to engage them on policy, they're not listening because you know, number either you're you're actually being racist um, and saying things that are are discriminatory, or you're not marginalizing people within the Republican Party. Um, you know that are spreading um, spreading hate, spreading this type of hate towards communities of color. Yeah, all of that. I think you know Donald Trump was the single greatest factor in empowering the API community than anything that we've witnessed uh, for our community in the history of, of our country, uh, right? And so really with this, like I'll give you an example of some of the implications of what he's done that are uh, the ripple effects, right? So in the late 80s, uh, there was a governor in California, uh, Governor Pete Wilson, uh, and some of, some of your listeners may remember this, but he was uh, uh, 
uh, a person who was very divisive, much like Donald Trump, but uh, uh, maybe not as um, overtly racist. And he had a lot of anti-Latino policies and legislation that he was proposing and his rhetoric was quite vicious in the day. And what that did was, uh, you know, California before that was uh, a very middle of, uh, of the road state. It wasn't the liberal California that it is today. Uh, but what he had done is made it a liberal state by virtue of his extreme rhetoric. He turned off uh, middle of the road Republicans and, uh, and, and certainly progressives and made it, you know, the California that we all see today. And that's what Donald Trump has done uh, for APIs yeah. and all people of color, frankly. And we are really only in the first inning or two of what are sort of the ramifications of Donald Trump. They will continue to play out uh, over the next, you know, years and perhaps decades. Um, and it could lead to eventually places like Texas flipping Right. Why? Well, now most governors who are Republicans, most people who are jockeying to uh, to run for president in 2024, if it's not Donald Trump himself, people who are running for Senate this year, they're all trying to outdo Donald Trump in terms yeah. of, you know, the extreme rhetoric. Right. So that is moving more and more people off the center to the left. And it's caused a lot of Republicans to just give up on, on their own party. And the ramifications are such that, you know, we may lose here or there. By we, I mean Democrats. We may lose certain, you know, uh, elections in the microcosm like, you know, we just lost in Virginia. But overall, the trend might yeah. be, and I, I, I predict it will be, yep. that we are going to turn off these voters for decades to come. It will be very hard for Republicans to to get them back. They will have to spend 10 times as much money as us to keep those voters. But that doesn't mean that they're naturally ours. We still have to spend money on making sure that, you know, the Democratic Party and progressive groups, uh, you know, don't uh, uh, stop reminding our own folks why they should vote for us. Um, but that's what I think is really kind of you know, uh, you know, playing out on a tectonic level, uh, and and will continue to play out. But I think, you know, the trend is our friend at this point. We just mm. can't let off the gas right now. I like that the trend is our friend. I mean, it's so important to think about um, the ways in which this is like an opportunity for progressives and for Democrats that it's just there. Like this is your opportunity, and I don't understand sometimes what folks are waiting for. Because, um, you know, they spend so much time focusing on winning back votes or trying to get Republican leaning people um, to come back to the party like, you know, the Reagan Democrat or something. <laughs> You're like, you know, um, and I, I just feel like in a lot of ways, the old way of thinking about who the Democratic Party is, um, you know, it. it I think it will come back to bite Democrats unless they take advantage of this opportunity as we've, you know, as you've clearly laid it out this morning, because we're talking about, um, you know, thinking back to even recent elections that that Virginia election, that was close. These elections are very close. Um, and it's important for Democrats to exploit to the best of their ability Um to the best, very best of their ability, all of the opportunities that are present to them. And this is a 
this is one that is clear and obvious to me. And I think, hopefully, to everyone listening after this conversation, Varun Nikor, thank you so much, Executive Director of the AAPI Victory Alliance. And I would love to have you back um, for more updates on on whether or not Democrats take advantage of this opportunity. <laughs> um, and, and as we head into the midterm elections this fall, this is something to keep close, close attention um, to. And um, it's going to have ramifications for the future of our country. That is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.